0: Following along, Uh, we're in Luke chapter 18, Uh, so if you've got your Bibles, if you need a Bible, just put up your hand and uh, we'd love to come bring a Bible round to you. And uh, we, a couple of weeks ago, started this journey together of spending 40 weeks focusing on God's presence, on praying and worshipping and seeking God and asking that question that we think is the most important question anyone can ask. What's at the centre of your life? And we're doing that in three areas. What's at the centre of our lives? As individuals, what's at the centre of our life as a church and what's at the centre of our life in our circles, so our families, our friendship group, our marriages uh, etc and I said that over these 40 weeks I really believe that God is calling us to increasingly become three things, Um, to become more dependent on God, to become more expectant for God and to become changed by God, dependent on God, expectant for God and changed by God. Last week we looked at what it means to be dependent on God and this week we're thinking about what does it mean to be expectant for God and next week we'll look at changed I don't know what that word expectancy means for you Um, there's a story told a true story um, about a guy called Joshua Bell and Joshua Bell a decade or so ago was the most famous violinist in the world great violinist and he used to play Uh, one of the great violins of the world, the Stradivarius violin, one of the very few in existence, $3.5 million this violin cost. And uh, he was playing a concert one night in Washington, D.C. And uh, Joshua Bell thought it'd be interesting if um, he, with the Washington Post, put on a social experiment, did a social experiment. Now, he was playing that night in D.C. in a concert venue. Tickets were going for over $100 a seat uh, but he decided that what he would do is he'd get up early in the morning, put on a baseball cap and some rough looking clothes. He'd go down into the subway that morning and he would play his violin down in the subway and not play, you know, popular tunes, but play basically the things he was going to play in the concert, Beethoven and Mozart and the rest. And the Washington Post wrote in a famous article about this uh, this social experiment. And the article um, was called Pearls Before Breakfast. I like that. Pearls Before Breakfast. And this is what they said. In a commonplace environment, at an inappropriate hour, do we perceive beauty? Do we stop to appreciate it? Do we recognise the talent in an unexpected context? And I wonder what you think happened. He got down there early, he played his violin. What do you think happened? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, people just ignored him. Um, Few people stopped. He was there for a good few hours. He raised about $35 uh, during the time... But most people just walked on by, you know, heads down, headphones in, holding the briefcase on the commute, on the way to work, the daily grind. And they missed. And I love to think that some of those people who walked past Joshua Bell in the subway were the same people who were paid over $100 to hear him in the concert theatre that night. We are called to be an expectant people, a people who expect the unexpected, who expect God to be at work in the world and who look for it. I think there's a symphony being played all around us, that God is at work every moment of our lives, in our world, in our city, in our church. And the question is not about the extent to which God is at work. The questions we should be asking are the extent to which we're able to hear it, the extent to which our ears are open. There's a symphony being played. Are we expecting to hear it? We're called to live our lives as a church, as individuals, in a way that's intentionally expectant for Jesus to be present and what I think we see in this passage in Luke chapter 18 is this man this individual blind we don't know for how long usually when the gospel writers talk about somebody sitting it's a way of them describing somebody who's been in their state of life for some time so there's a good chance that he's been by this roadside begging perhaps he's been blind for all of his life But here he is, and I think what he models to us is somebody who is expectant for Jesus. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage together and work out what does this man tell us about what it is to be expectant for Jesus. Now, the key to the passage, I think, is two names, two names. So uh, there's two names that are articulated, two ways, if you like, of describing Jesus. And if you look with me at verse um, 36, uh, he sat there by this roadside begging. The crowd are there. He hears the crowd and he asks them, what's going on? And they say to him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now, Jesus of Nazareth is uh, a flat term, a flat name. It's a name that's just a description. It's like saying Will from Bromley or Maeve from, where are you from Maeve? <laughs> that's right, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so Maeve from Durham. It's, it's, it's just a way of describing somebody. And we all have that when you introduce yourself to somebody, you know, where are you from? What do you do? It's a flat description. And then verse 38, we're told he calls out. And he calls out something that's astonishing. He doesn't call out Jesus of Nazareth. He calls out Jesus, son of David. Now, son of David is not a neutral name at all. It's not a flat term. It's a big name. It's a royal name. It's a name that carries with it all of the hopes all of the expectations of the old testament god's anointed god's chosen the long expected king in other words this man seems to know something that the crowd seem to miss either intentionally or accidentally that they miss it this is no ordinary man this is the king and so you've got two names two ways of viewing what's going on jesus of nazareth jesus son of david perhaps we can say this they are on the commute Headphones in, briefcase, head down, daily grind. They see the world as it is. Whereas this man, he hears a symphony, right? He hears who Jesus is. He hears the significance who Jesus is. And because he knows who this Jesus is, he can't stay quiet. He cries out. Because the nature of the object determines our response to it and our level of expectation, Right? The nature of the object determines our level of response to it. If I said to you, for example, um, there's a a fly has just flown into the back of church and there it is on the back wall over there. Now, most of you would be like, why is he telling me this? What's the relevance of this? Some of you might be fly experts, I don't know, and you might be particularly fascinated by the fly. You might go to see what the fly is about and study the fly, but the vast majority of us would be non-moved. But if I said you'll never guess. A Siberian tiger's just wandered in the back. Now you're thinking something, right? Now you're ready. Now you are expectant. And you're thinking to yourself, something's going to (laughs) happen, right? And I don't know what it is, but something's going to happen. The nature of the object determines our response to it. And what this man realises is that Jesus Christ is not the fly. Jesus Christ is the tiger, Jesus Christ is the tiger. And so he, if you like, knows some things about Jesus that make him particularly expectant for what Jesus can do, that make him particularly ready for Jesus to move in his life in a powerful way. And so I just want to explore these four things four things that this man knows about Jesus that shapes his expectancy of him. Four things. Is that okay? Okay. So here's the first one. Because Jesus cares about me, we expect, to get this, we expect this to get personal. That's what he realises. Because Jesus cares about me, therefore we expect this to get personal. So what this man realises quickly, and it's a simple but really important point, is that the data about Jesus directly impacts him. So over there is Jesus. And it would be possible to say that who he is, what he's doing, you know, it's maybe interesting, maybe worth noticing, but it's over there. But what this man does is go further. Verse 38, have mercy on me. What he sees is that whatever, whoever this Jesus is, he has something significant to offer my life. That his story is somehow about my story and vice versa. Somehow our stories are connected. And I expect that sooner or later, this man thinks he's going to ask me the question that he asks every single person who comes to him. Verse 41. What do you want me to do for you? That's the question that Jesus asks. What do you want me to do for you? We're all about that question at St Nick's and we believe that Jesus does ask that question of each and every person that Jesus values each and every life, whoever they are, whoever we encounter, whoever we interact with, whoever comes into this church, that Jesus is interested in them. Now, he's interested in communities, he's interested in nations, he's interested in people groups, all the rest of it. But he's interested as well in individuals. And he asks us that question, what do you want me to do for you? Not what you want me to do for them or the church or in that city, You know, there's so many ways that we avoid having to address that question. So many ways that we try to fight it. We fight it by saying that, you know, maybe we should care about other people than about ourselves. I'll just spend time serving other people. Sometimes we avoid that question by taking up a political cause or a social cause and making that the most important thing so we don't need to focus on us. Sometimes we avoid it in negative ways through judging others, through gossip and the like. However we try to avoid it, at some point we are faced with the reality that Jesus will ask us that question. He does ask us that question and one day he will ask that question face to face. What do you want me to do for you? I cannot, this man realises, simply be a neutral observer. I expect that when I pray and when we gather as a church, Jesus really does at some point want to talk to me. He really does have an interest in my life. That's the first expectation, that sooner or later, at some level, what Jesus is about, this church thing, whatever this is about, somehow it's about me and about my life. Second realisation. Because Jesus transforms, we therefore expect to be changed. Because Jesus transforms, we therefore expect to be changed. Now that's what the man expects, isn't it? Jesus can and wants to change me. I need to call out, he thinks, because here's an opportunity for real transformation. Now, I don't need to say much about this change word because we're going to be looking at it next week together. But I do believe that Jesus wants to change us. That's what he wants to do. He wants to change us, change me, change you, bring us to more life, more freedom, more goodness, more joy. He wants to change our city. He wants to change lives of our friends and our families. What I do want to say here is that this is a story of healing. And like so many of these stories in the Gospels of healing, they can be for us sometimes difficult passages to read. You don't need me to tell you that not everybody who prays to be healed is healed. That not everybody has their deepest longings addressed and answered. That the issue of healing so often because of our reality causes us more pain and lament than it does cause us expectation. And I can't possibly address that huge theological issue here now in church this morning. What I can say, though, is that my faith is that every interaction with Jesus leaves us changed. That, that when we open ourselves up to him, we are changed somehow. Sometimes quickly, sometimes over many years. The change I'm talking about here may be dramatic physical healing. And let's praise God when that happens in our community but it may also be a change of heart, a change of imagination, the much slower work of a change of perspective. The change from despair to hope, from indifference to love, from trauma to security. We are expectant then in the sense that we believe that every time we come to church or we read or we pray or we worship or we meet intentionally with other Christians, We expect that in some way Jesus can change us, in some way Jesus can change us. We pray and worship to give God the glory, but one of the fruits of this is that Jesus changes us. So let's become expectant for that. And it's just to say that in the last few weeks, as we've been talking about this 40 weeks and asking that question, what's at the centre? It's been so humbling to me and encouraging to me to see people in our community. Opening up about some of their stuff, sharing some of their story with me, with others. Taking those little steps of vulnerability, realising these first two things, that yes, it's about me and secondly, that Jesus at some level wants to change me. That maybe something I've been carrying for years and years and years and never talked to anyone about, that maybe Jesus wants to help with that, take it away or heal it or overcome it in some way. And that might, as we go through this 40 weeks, that might continue to happen. It might be that Jesus just puts his finger on something in your life that maybe, you've, like I say, been carrying for a long time. or well, that's a big issue for you. And he just wants to address it somehow, to name it, to heal it, to change it. Don't be surprised if that happens over these 40 weeks. So the second one, because Jesus transforms, we expect at some level to be changed. The third one, Because Jesus cares, we expect to cry out. Because Jesus cares, we expect to cry out. Now, there's two cries in this passage. The first cry, verse 38, uh, the man cries out, he calls out uh, in in these versions. Uh, The word is more than a call. It's a strong word. Uh, It's a word that's used about 12 times in the whole of the New Testament. And the Greek word, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. The Greek word that's used is this word, Baha'u, Baha'u. And everybody say, Baha'u? Good, excellent. Yeah, it's a word that means exclaim or one uh, definition says this, to make an urgent distress call, to summon intensely because one is sorely needing a response. This, we could say, is a deep cry from the gut. And just as with many characters in the Gospels, there's a sense in which the people who cry out like this, they get the depth of Jesus's love. They're close to Jesus in a particular way because their heart is aligned with his heart. I don't know the journey that God is taking us on, on a church, as a church, but I do believe that because of the nature of Jesus, if he is at work here, if he's at work amongst us, then we will expect deeper cries in the full range of emotion. So that's an expression of the depth of human experience, you know, the depth of lament, the depth of pain. Because if Jesus is who the gospels say he is, then there's no, no man in antiquity, no human being in antiquity in this time was so emotional. No one felt as much as Jesus. We, we, we have stories of him weeping. We have stories of him crying out in pain, of crying out in lament. And, and so if we're to get to know Jesus, if Jesus is to be at our centre, we should expect to feel things more. You know, feel the pain of the world. That when we see the news, when we turn on our TV, we, we feel it more. Right? But, but so too, as well as sort of going to the bottom, as it were, the lament, so too we would feel deeper joy, Deeper celebration. That there would be laughter, cries of laughter and cries of, of pain. How can we not when we see the reality of the world, those two things? So to, to deeper cries, both high and low. And that, just to say, I've used that word feeling quite a lot and feels. That word emotion is not a word that I'm afraid of. I know that emotion can be manipulated. And, and sometimes we can worry that church is manufacturing emotion or is about just emotion. But you know... God gives us emotion. And if, we, if you had a close friendship, a really close friendship, and you never felt anything at all, well, then you'd say that there was a problem with that relationship. So when we meet Jesus here at church or as we pray, as we work in the world, as we, as we pray on our own, as we gather, we should expect to feel, to have our emotions engaged, not all the time. And again, we can't go chasing the feeling. The goal is Jesus, not the feeling. But the feeling, again, is one of the fruits of that encounter. There is more to us than just emotion. But we should expect to feel things when we encounter Jesus. Joy, sadness. And as he works on our hearts, we will, I believe, feel more and not less. And so the expectation that this man has, because he knows the reality of Jesus, the expectation he has is to cry out. That's his expectation, that he will feel something as he encounters Jesus. And that's what he expresses. And fourth and finally... Because Jesus refuses to stay quiet, we shout all the more. Oh, we shout all the more. I love this bit, verse 39. They tell him to be quiet, but he shouts all the more. Uh, different translations have different things. Some say, uh, you know, the crowd say to him, keep your peace. You know, others, others, more modern translations might say, shut up. <laughs> right? Be quiet. You don't get what's going on. You don't understand the social etiquette here. You don't you don't understand the social norms, you don't understand the way things work around here. When a significant popular figure comes into the city, you don't shout out, you keep your place. You know who you are, we know who we are. Keep your place. But he shouted all the more. I think expectancy is shown by our willingness to take steps, even small ones, but maybe big ones, to open ourselves up to God. Steps that might feel beyond social acceptability or social norms, might feel even beyond our own norms. In his desire for Jesus, this man refused the established social and cultural boundaries of his day. And I I believe that us becoming a more expectant church is about us pushing a bit more into opening ourselves up to God in potentially risky ways. I don't know what that looks like for you. We've spoken a bit in these forty, the start of this 40 weeks about personal commitment, you know, getting up earlier, risking praying with your family or friends, just saying to a friend or even a spouse, can I pray for you? Sometimes these small things are huge. You know, what if when a friend shares some difficult news or a work colleague, what if we said to them, can I pray for you? Or, or, or even take a step back, what if you said, you know, I'm going to pray for you tonight or sometimes I pray for you. It feels risky. That's the sort of expectancy that God is inviting us into. You know, people have taken steps, even in the last week, of coming to first Monday or coming to morning prayer, getting up earlier and praying. Some people are praying out loud in those meetings in a way that they wouldn't normally pray out loud. And when we gather corporately, how might we shout all the more? You know, there's a song and then the song ends and we sit down. What if every now and again, because of the way that God is moving among us, because of what the Holy Spirit is doing, we say, you know, I won't sit down. Not just yet. I'll just wait a little bit longer for God to speak. What if we lifted our arms in worship, held out our hands, shut our eyes, spoke prayers out loud? I don't know. Now, hear me right. What I'm not saying is that any of these things are better than any others. The external form doesn't really matter at all. Hands in the air, hands down, whatever you like. You know, some of you love putting your hands up in the air to worship and you don't even think about it. Others of us, it might feel like a huge thing just to put out a hand. The point is not what the thing is. And I'm certainly not calling any of us or calling the church to suddenly become a Pentecostal church in that sense or a church full of massive extroverts. But I am saying let's together take seriously what it is to push into God to risk a bit to say you know if Jesus really is who he says he is then he is calling me to greater expectancy greater openness so four things this man recognizes that there is something about Jesus which means things cannot just stay normal when if Jesus is present it means things will be different that fundamentally is the expectancy If Jesus is passing by, that's the lovely phrase that is used in this passage, when Jesus passes by, if Jesus is passing by, things will be different. It means, first of all, that it includes me and my story. Second, it means transformation and change. Third, it means a deeper emotional experience of the world. And fourth, it means taking steps of openness to his working. Sisters, brothers, there's a symphony being played. Are we expecting it? Let's not, in these 40 weeks, miss what God is doing through Jesus Christ by the power of his spirit. Let's not miss what God is doing through Jesus Christ by the power of his spirit. Let's not miss what God is doing through Jesus Christ by the power of his spirit. Let me pray. Lord, you are the lion. The blind man knew it. We know it. We thank you that his life was transformed. Lord, some of us would know that transformation. Some of us will not know that transformation that we long for. But we do believe that when you are at work, things change. Lord, increase our sense of expectancy, we pray not by us trying harder, not by us striving more, but by trusting you. Come Holy Spirit now, change our hearts, we pray. Help us to be expectant for the good things you want to do on us. In Jesus' name, everybody said...